If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 3. Um, our sermon text today is 1 Samuel 3, verse 1, all the way through chapter 4, verse 1. And the title of today's sermon is Light into Darkness. And if you are confused as to why we aren't preaching through Second Luke, 1 Luke, chapter 2, or anything like that, this is just the third sermon in our sermon series through the books of Samuel. And it's providential, I think, that this is the text that, that we are going to work through today because Jesus is the light of the world. And in this text, we're going to see a dark period in the, in the time of Israel, but this lamp of God in the temple is still going to be burning. And so God, even in the midst of conflict, speaks light into darkness and brings light out of darkness. And so that's how our God brings his king out of conflict, which is the thesis statement of this sermon series. So I'm going to read the text in its entirety, pray, and then we'll get to work looking at how God brings light out of darkness. So here we are, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called for me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called Samuel again, saying, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling, at, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or by offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew. And the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came 
to all Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need your light even now to hear, to see, to understand this text, to perceive it as your word, to receive it with all joy. Father, we know this is a story. Many of us are familiar with it, but Lord, help us to hear these words and see the story with fresh eyes, with clear ears, that we might know that you are at work even in the darkest of times. Father, help us to even know on a, on a deeply personal and intimate level that even in the darkness of our own hearts, in the darkness of our own lives, you have not abandoned us, you have not forsaken us, you are with us because you are our good God covenant-keeping Yahweh who draws near to his people and draws us to the throne of grace that we might find help in our time of need. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would enlighten our hearts and minds so the reading and the preaching of this word would not return void, that you would do with it as you seem fit, Lord, that you would not let any of your words fall to the ground, but that they would go forth and accomplish exactly what you have purposed for them. Lord Jesus, we love you. Help us to humbly submit to your word this morning. We pray all of this in your holy and powerful name. Amen. With over 137,000 recordings, Silent Night is, by all accounts, the most popular Christmas carol of all time. And for many of us, as we sing that Christmas carol, um, it might be the, the most Christmassy of songs. And it might seem to you that it kind of was invented by having a machine and throwing in the machine candy canes and gingerbread houses and holly and ivy and pouring some eggnog and turn a little crank and out pops this wonderful and most Christmas of delights. But actually, the history of Silent Night is slightly darker than that. Um, on the heels of the Napoleonic Wars in the 19th century, um, Europe was reeling from conflict. Um, there was economic scarcity and insecurity. The Atlantic slave trade was increasing at rates that had never been seen before. Um, there was fires, there was famine, there was all kinds of darkness, but the wars themselves had ceased. And because of this, uh, an Austrian priest decided to write this poem, Still Knocked, to commemorate the, the fact that despite all the other things happening in the world, all the other darknesses and disasters, the wars have ceased. And so there is cause to rejoice in the silence of that night. And so even though he set that poem aside for two years and only brought it out two years later when his parish flooded and they sang it in worship together, we can commemorate and recognize that even in the midst of deep, deep darkness, there is still light to be seen because our God is still at work. Our God is still good. Our God is still keeping covenant. Our God is still bringing light into the darkness. And so we look here at 1 Samuel 3 and we see the context into which God is speaking this dark time. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of the Eli and we see that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. So we see that in this context, remember, this is the time of the judges. When the judges ruled, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we see that in this time, the word of the Lord was rare. The, the Hebrew word there for rare is, is precious, like a jewel. It's something that you don't get very often, so it's very valuable. So the word of the Lord, even though there were still priests, there was still the temple, God's revelation was not regular or frequent. 
And then this next line that the author combines with it, the, the, there was no frequent vision. Church planters love that idea. that They love that word vision. Without vision, the people will perish. But that word for vision is not a plan that you're going to have and go plant a church somewhere. That word for vision is indeed that word for special, unique revelation that comes from God. And so the author is telling us that in this time, the word of the Lord was rare. There was no frequent revelation from God. And that word frequent... Almost every other time that that Hebrew word is used in the Old Testament has to do with a military conflict. There was no, um, it, it's the word for breach, the word for breaking through. And so the picture that we get here that the author of Samuel is giving us is this dark time where there's not a lot of revelation from God and where there's this crusty, calloused, dense, dead spiritual time that God's word has not yet broken through to the hearts and the minds of his people. This is the context in which we find God's people. And not only is this the context where there's spiritual and moral darkness and decay and callousness, we, we see this even personified almost in the person of Eli. Where, again, as we talked about last week, every other time that Eli is going to be mentioned from here on out, his age and infirmity is going to be brought up. And the author here tells us that Eli, as he's getting old, his eyes are growing dim so that he cannot see. So in a time of great spiritual darkness and blindness, we see even the priest of God almost personifying and embodying that kind of spiritual blindness that is afflicting his people. We've already seen in the narrative as it's unfolded that Eli has shown himself to be a spiritually blind and bereft leader. He couldn't restrain his own sons. He couldn't uh, deal with the sin of his sons, the priests, as they were afflicting the people. And so he is himself a spiritually blind guide, it seems. Yet in this time, with deadness, with darkness, with despair, with blind, old, weak, ineffective leaders, the light of God had not yet gone out. The lamp of God was still burning in the temple. Now I'm going to pause there. Kids, I have a question for you. Um, it's Christmas Eve today. Congratulations on being at church and not skipping church for the holiday. But you have a tree at your house, probably. What are some of the ornaments on your tree? What are some of your favorite ornaments on the tree? Calvin, what about you? A picture of you. Nice. Nice. Other favorite ornaments? Yeah, Leo. The star on the top. Margaret, what about you, sweetheart? Star on the top. Very good. Other kids' favorite ornaments on your tree? Yeah, Ellie. Crystal star. Very fancy. Jack, what about you, bud? Your your what? Bear. Bear. Oh, the bear. Yeah. What about you, Ryder? Crystal star. You guys have fancy stars. Yes. I don't know you, but yes. The Darth Vader. I like that one. We also have a pickle with a Christmas Santa hat on. I like that one as well. Now, I have a question to follow up with that one. Um, let, let's say the lights are off in, in your living room. Can you see all your ornaments on the tree still? You can't see? Can, can you? Yeah, you can. Why? Because there's lights on the tree, too. And those lights that are on the tree that are maybe white lights, maybe multicolored lights, they shine on the ornaments even when all the other lights are out in the room. And so this lamp of God that we see here in the temple, 
I don't want to milk this too hard and get blood and, and make it something that's not. But this lamp of God is quite literally the thing that shines lights on everything else in the sanctuary. The sanctuary, where, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where um, the showbread was, that was in the middle of the temple. There would have been no windows there. So this lamp of God was put in the center of the temple to shine light on everything else that the priests were supposed to use for worship. And in many ways, it is emblematic of the very presence of God himself amongst his people. If you, if you, you don't have to turn there now, but if you go to that great eschatological vision in Revelation 21 where he talks about, where John writes of the vision he has of, of the new Jerusalem, it says there that the Lamb, Jesus, who was slain and who was resurrected, he himself is the light of the temple. And so even there's darkness all around spiritually and morally and culturally, and there's literal darkness in the temple because it's getting to be night. That lamp of God, that light of God had not yet gone out. There is still hope for God and for his people because here is Samuel laying down in his place near the ark of the God, near the very presence of God himself, and he's about to be called by God to speak a message. And so out of this darkness, we see in verse 4, the Lord calls to Samuel, and Samuel attempts to answer. So despite the fact that we learn a few verses later that Samuel does not yet know the Lord, there is a very clear readiness and willingness for Samuel to be faithful to a master. So he hears a voice, believes it's Eli, and goes and runs to Eli and says, Here I am, master, what do you need? And so there's a couple things that we can point out from this, I think we can glean from this. One, Samuel was obviously very used to having to tend to Eli in the middle of the night. Um, as men get older and their eyesight goes away, oftentimes they need to wake up in the middle of the night. You know how it goes. And so Samuel was very used to having to go and help Eli manage his, his evening affairs. But the other thing that we see is that there's this heart. There's this, there's this pattern of humble service. There's a pattern and a posture of wanting to do what he's supposed to do in that moment. And so God calls Samuel out of that darkness, and he goes to serve his master. And so there's twice there's a call, twice there's an answer, twice there was a redirection from Eli. Go and lay back down. I didn't call you. Go back to your place. And then finally on that third time, Eli, the one who has a track record of being a little slow on the uptake, the one who's a track record of being a little deaf and, and, and unfeeling towards spiritual things. Eli, who himself is going blind, both physically and probably spiritually in his old age. Eli, the, the blind one, finally perceives, finally sees that Yahweh is doing something. He finally sees that the Lord is up to something. And so on that third time, he sends Samuel back to his place, redirecting him to uh, respond to Yahweh, who is at work. And so here we see again God and his faithful care for his people. There is still light shining in the darkness. All is not blind and dark for his people. And so on that fourth time, that fourth call, the Lord goes and apparently stands before Samuel to make a very visceral presence known. And Samuel says, speak for your servant hears. I want to draw your attention to the kindness of our God, who in his kindness and in his love puts people in places to remind his people in their place that he is there, he is not silent, and he has not forgotten you. 
I want you to, for a moment, consider your own situation and the context in which we live and how loud and noisy it can seem. How many voices are vying for your attention? How many voices are vying for your allegiance and fealty? How many voices are calling you in all kinds of directions that you may or may not want to go? We live in a simultaneously very noisy time, but also a spiritually deaf time. And consider how you probably have a heart that, as we sing in the great hymn, is prone to wander. Not only do you hear all these voices from the outside, but you yourself have a heart that wants to go, that wants to run in different directions. Most often, if we're being honest in our kind of residual sinfulness, we want to run away from God towards our own sinful desires. But God and his kindness puts people, puts us in places to be reminded that he is there and he is calling to us. He desires for us to respond to him, to know him, to love him. And there are two big implications that I want to bring out of that. The first one is this. If you are a younger person, I think you have an obligation and an opportunity in the church to seek out an older person for wisdom and redirection. To some degree, whatever, I don't want to milk this too hard either, but we see this pattern with Eli and Samuel, where Eli is his 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 master, his lord, his boss, and he's redirecting him, giving him vision and giving him purpose in his life and helping him understand what's going on. And so if we are younger, especially as believers, I think we have an obligation to seek out wisdom and redirection from older, more seasoned saints. And for those of you who are more seasoned saints who have more perspective, who have more experience, I think you have an opportunity and an obligation to share that as the Lord moves you with those who have less opportunity, less experience, less life under their belts. God made us to exist in community. As, as Ed prayed earlier, we're a family, and we have an opportunity to uh, share wisdom we have with each other. And so as believers, we need to lean on each other to hear how God is moving, how God is speaking, how God might be, um, how, how we might encourage one another, how we might spur one another on all the more as we see the day drawing near. We need each other to share wisdom and perspective and encouragement. God made us for that, and he gives us that in the church. But the, the second implication, I think, from this is I want you to look at the kindness and the patience and the persistence of our God calling Samuel. God did not just call once and then say he didn't get it. Forget about it. Our God has made his call regular and persistent and passionate and particular in the lives of his people. And for us as God's people, we get to experience that under the preaching of his word. We say in our our shorter catechism that God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of his word, an effective means of convincing and converting sinners. God speaks through his word and the proclamation of his word. And we have that regular and particular and passionate thing that we get to sit under week after week where there's a cacophony of voices out here vying for our attention. We get to stop and we get to come here and we get to block those other things out and we get to hear from God himself. This is the most important thing that the church does. There are so many good things that the church can do. We can make cookies for first responders and for each other. We can have a a plan and a program of discipleship. We can participate in a food pantry and economic relief for for the poor in our culture, for our area. But nothing, 
Not a single thing is as important as the proclamation of God's word. Because again, we are prone to wonder, prone to hear other voices. So we desperately need that patient and that particular and that passionate proclamation of God's word to shine light in those darkest areas of our hearts and our minds to remind us that God is there. He is faithful. He is just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is a faithful God who has not forgotten you. And we need that reminder week after week after week. And the moment the church deviates from this is the moment the church loses her way. Paul writes in the Apostle to the Romans, how will they hear if no one goes and tells them? How will they hear without preaching? So the preaching of God's word is central to the role of the church, central to the life of the Christian, because that is how God speaks to us. Now, if that's the case, if God is speaking to us through his word, read and proclaimed in, in, in the work of preaching, what is the content of that proclamation? So we have to wrestle with a little bit in, in this chapter. What is the content of this call from God to Samuel? And so we look and we see in chapter 3, verse 11, the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. If you look at all the other prophetic works in, in the Bible, there's usually a, a formula that attends with it. Um, the word of the Lord came to such and such and, such, and God's message is, is delivered. And he says, go to those people. Think about Nineveh or think about Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Think about Isaiah's vision where, where God reveals himself and says, go to this people and proclaim what I have to you. But here, as God comes to Samuel, his once and future prophet, There's no call to go anywhere. There's no great sending and commissioning of this prophet. What we have here is a recapitulation of God's covenant faithfulness and covenant judgment against sin. This is a reiteration of exactly what the last prophet we saw, this man of God that came to Eli in chapter 2. It's a recapitulation of what that prophet said. And that prophet said, there's going to be judgment against you for your sin. And God is doubling down on the saying, when I do all of this, everyone's ears who hears it will tingle. I'm going to pause one more time. And kids, very important question that I have to ask you. We have all these cookies out here, but I want to, what's been your favorite holiday treat that you've eaten thus far? What's been your favorite holiday treat that you've gotten in this Christmas season? Unless you just haven't had any. Yeah, Calvin, what's yours? That, that is a very good treat. I was thinking more specifically things you would eat. Uh, a treat that you got to eat. Uh, anybody, anybody have any good treats? Ryder, is that a hand? Cookies. Very cool. Any other treats? Just cookies? All right. Yes. Cinnamon buns. You are quickly becoming my new favorite. Uh, yeah, Leo. Cookies. Now, okay, Piper. Cookies. You guys all love... Margaret, one more. Okay. All right. John. Buckeyes. Okay, there we go. That's a good combo of chocolate and peanut butter. I love that. Now, do you guys get such treats all the time? 
So maybe not all the time if, you know, we're being good parents and we're trying to steward your, your, uh, your eating habits. But when you get that treat and you finally get that cookie or that cinnamon bun or that buckeye, you eat it and it hits your lips and it's, oh, it's just so good. It's like it's this special treat and it almost makes your tongue and lips tingle with excitement because you're getting this thing that you don't get all the time and it's special. In the same way. In that time when the word of the Lord was rare and there was no frequent vision, God is going to make himself known in such a mighty and powerful and obvious way that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. It will be so substantial and so impactful and so meaningful that you will not help to be affected by it. God is doubling down. On his promised judgment against sin, God is doubling down on his covenant promises. And you have to ask the question, if this is such a dark and dreary time, when there was no frequent vision, when it was the time of the judges, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king, why on earth is God seemingly adding to that darkness Why on earth is God saying, you know what, it's a bad time and it's going to be an even worse time and we're going to quadruple down on judgment and death and terror? Well, part of getting healthy, as many of you might know, is excising the unhealthy part. If you've had skin cancer, sometimes you've got to just dig that out. If you've had uh, an organ that stopped working, you just got to get that removed. Uh, sometimes God does his best addition by subtraction. And what we see here is that there is a very real element that God's holiness and justice and, and judgment is being brought to bear on the sinful, wicked sons of Eli. They're going to be put to death for their blasphemous leadership. And God, in his judgment here, is not being capricious. He's not being arbitrary. He's being entirely consistent to the word of his promise. In Leviticus 24, we see very clearly that the judgment for blasphemy against God is quite clearly the death penalty. And so God, in his judgment, in his, the content of his call towards Samuel is just the consistent revelation of his nature. There is a consistent, holy opposition to sin. And that is what God is doing here. But at the same time, there's this glimmer of hope where, where, where God and his judgment against sin, there's still a way out for people. God gives us not just judgment against sin, but God gives us the atoning sacrifices that, that animals can be slaughtered in the place of a sinful people. And so God's not just all judgment. There is grace to be had with him as well and mercy to be found. But at this point, God is saying there is a point in time. For my people, where there is no atonement, where there is no sacrifice, where there is only condemnation. When the rejection and rebellion against God gets to a certain point, we we learn here, there is no coming back from that. There is only death and destruction. But it's not all doom and gloom on Christmas Eve morning. God does not leave us without warning and without proper hope and revelation God is telling Samuel, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be consistent in who I am and my character and my commands and my revelation. You are learning this. There is no shock. There is no, there is no clandestine plan. I am doing this because I'm consistent with who I am. I am consistent with my character and I'm consistent in my revelation. 
And so what we learn in this most consistent and kind God is that rejection of this God who loves us, who patiently calls us back to himself, who patiently and passionately says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and you will find rest for your souls. There is a time when eventually there's no coming back from that rejection and the way of rejecting God is the way that leads to death and destruction. Because ultimately, God is holy and just and loving and perfect and if we reject our God and Savior, we choose death for ourselves and we are beyond the pale. But the thing that we need to focus on in this moment is that God is consistent and dependable. He's consistent in his call. He's consistent in his character. He's consistent in his warning. He has not left us without a way of repentance because he has consistently sent his men into the field to proclaim the gospel of repentance and faith. And if our God is consistent, he's dependable, and we can look to him in faith and find help in our time of need. But it's not just that. It's not contained in that exchange with Samuel. God does not come to Samuel and then keep him contained in his own little place. The word of God goes forth and bears fruit, and we find confirmation in the word of God as Samuel continues. We look in verse uh, 15. Samuel goes back to his place and he laid down. He lays down until morning and he goes once again into the house of the Lord. And he's conflicted. He's conflicted because he doesn't want to share with Eli what God has spoken to him. He doesn't want to share this word of judgment and condemnation. But God, his word will not return void. His word will not be contained. And so Eli draws out of Samuel, what does the Lord say to you? If you do not tell me what the Lord said, may he do even more to you than what he promised. And so Samuel shares everything, leaves out nothing to Eli And here's the beautiful response. Eli says, it is the Lord. That's Yahweh. He's going to do what he's going to do. He's going to be who he's going to be. Let his will be done. Let him do what seems good to him. And so there's a very real sense in which Eli, as he receives the word of God, confirms it in his humble response. He doesn't buck against God's design or God's command. He says, this is Yahweh, the the one who made heaven and earth, the one who rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, the one who covenanted with us. He is the one who has all authority. Let him do what seems good. But not only do we have this confirmation of the priest responding and submitting to what God says, we have God's own uncontained, unrestrained growth of the work of the word of the Lord. And so we see that as Samuel goes, he grows in the knowledge and the presence of the Lord. The Lord is with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. I think the writer was purposefully vague in that moment. Whose words? It doesn't matter. When Eli, or when Samuel spoke, he's speaking the very words of God. So the word of God and the words of Samuel, they went forth and returned, not void, but accomplished exactly what they were to purpose. And so Samuel grew, and God kept appearing, and God kept revealing himself to Samuel at Shiloh. And then it says, 
all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba. That means all 12 tribes, all regions, all every corner of that place where the word of the Lord was rare, where there was no frequent vision. Every corner of that place knew that Yahweh, the dependable, kind, covenant-keeping God, had set his prophet Samuel, had established his prophet Samuel at Shiloh to proclaim the word of the Lord. They all knew from everywhere. And the Lord continually shows up and speaks, and his word does not return void. And so, with this confirmation, as the word of the Lord grows, one of the implications that I want to draw out of this for us as God's people today is that the word of the Lord cannot and should not be restrained. It cannot and should not be hidden. And what that means for us is that like we have an obligation, an opportunity to, to go and find wisdom from our brothers and sisters in Christ, we have an application, an obligation and an opportunity to go forth and share the goodness of God's word with everybody. Now, sometimes that might be, come to this place, come to this church where I go and hear the pastor preach a sermon. That is a viable and acceptable way of helping the word of God be proclaimed and shared. We should all be inviting our neighbors, inviting our friends, inviting our coworkers to church with us. That would be a delight. We should also all be supporting the work of RUF and Young Life, where Brian and Peter are going out on the campus of WVU. They're going out in the, the schools in the area. They're raising up leaders to go share the word of the Lord. That is another viable way that we can be a part of sharing God's word. We should support those two ministries. But the other thing that we have to wrestle with is, Are we extolling the virtues of God with people that are around us? You're about to presumably get gifts uh, from people in your life, from your moms, your dads, your husbands, your wives, your friends, your your family members. Some of the gifts are going to be better than others, probably. And those good ones that you get, you're going to tell everybody about. You're going to say, man, my... Mom bought me this new air fryer, and I can make chicken nuggets so much faster now. You're going to say, my wife got me this subscription to a magazine that I'm going to read, and it's going to make me a better person. My, my husband got me this, this uh, gym membership that I'm going to go, and I'm going to get stronger than him because I'm woman, hear me roar. When you get a good gift that you benefit from, it is the most natural thing in the world to extol its virtues and its goodness to those with whom you come in contact It is the most natural thing in the world to want to tell everybody else about the things that you've gotten, how they've helped you, what you've learned from them, and why you value them. What if it was like that with our God and Savior? What if it became the pattern in our lives to extol not just the good things that God did for me, that God made my anxiety go away, that God gave me hope or whatever. What if we were extolling the truth of God? regardless of whether whether or not other people believed it? What if we were extolling the beauty and the majesty of God to everybody else? What if we were to share who God is, how God has worked in time, space, history in the world, but also how God has worked in our own time, space, history of our lives? I would encourage you, as we go through this holiday season and get into the new year, what would it look like for you to show and to tell and to share with how God has worked in your own heart, in your own mind, in your own family, in your own history, and in the history of the world. God's word can and should go forth without hindrance. And we need that. We need that in a world that's starving for truth. 
in a world that's starving for light, in a world that's starving for beauty, in a world that's starving for goodness, we have a better story. We have a better explanation. We have a better glory waiting for us. We have a better hope than anything else the world can offer. So in a world that has increasingly deaf ears, we need to be confident in extolling the virtues of the God who broke into this world and who will break into this world yet again to make all things new. Because brothers and sisters, even though God shows up a big way, in a big way here in Samuel and establishes Samuel as that prophet in Shiloh, the darkness is not dispelled from Israel at this time. The next time that this phrase, um, where their ears tingle, the next time that phrase appears in the Bible is in 2 Kings, where there's judgment against Manasseh's sin. And then it's used again in the prophet Jeremiah, when Jeremiah is prophesying that there is a great horror and terror that's coming from the north, the Babylonian Empire, that's going to come right into the heart of this city, right into the heart of this temple. And this thing is going to be destroyed. And every good thing, every beautiful thing, every golden lampstand that's in that temple is going to be carried away into the treasury of the Babylonian Empire. And God's people will be crushed and dispelled from their place and plunged into an even darker darkness than they're experiencing right now. But even out of that darkness, God still sends his prophets to prophesy what? A return to this land. And so by God's instrument, Cyrus, the Persian emperor, he sends them back and they rebuild the temple. But even when they get back and they get that temple again, the darkness is not dispelled. We have other prophets like Joel and Haggai and Malachi that prophesied during that second temple that remind us, that teach us that even then when they went back to the land and established the temple, the priests still weren't perfect. There was still all kinds of sin and idolatry. There was still all kinds of darkness and despair, even though God was still working. And then after that very last prophet, Malachi, what? There's 400 years of silence. The word of the Lord was not just rare. It was gone. For 400 years after the prophet Malachi, there was no new revelation. There was, as it were, spiritual darkness over the land. Until what? Until what happened, what we read in our call to worship, the people who dwelt in great darkness, they saw a great light. And on them, the light has shone. And in the fullness of time, God sent not just another prophet, but he sent his own son, born of a woman, born of a virgin, born under the law to do what? To redeem us from the curse of all of our law breaking. To redeem his people from the curse of their rejection. To save his people from their sins. And that's why he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Because he will save his people from their sins. And he will do what? He will take on flesh and he will tabernacle among us. He will be a temple among us so that we might what? See the light of the world. And by his spirit, we might have light shown into the darkest places of our hearts and our minds. And by his spirit, our lights or our minds, which were darkened by sin, might be enlightened. And we might see the reality of our sin, that we might repent from the horrors of our sin, that we might turn to our God in faith. 
In the fullness of time, God sent his son to save the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And by that salvation, brothers and sisters, you and I and all who look to Christ and believe are transferred from what? The kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of everlasting light. Until that day, we can praise him and wait until our king comes back in the fullness of his glory. Then there's no more sun in that new temple. God himself will be there, and he will be our light. The lamb that was slain and was resurrected, he will be the light. And we will worship him in glory forever. And so, brothers and sisters, when we read this and we read of the condemnation of God against sin, we read of the darkness of the despair of both this time and the darkness of our own hearts, we have to remember that our good and gracious and persistent and kind God His grace is new every morning and his mercies never come to an end because our God brings light out of darkness. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, it's so easy to to want to be a lamp unto ourselves, to be a light unto ourselves, to reject what you have designed for us and to go our own way. But Lord, in your kindness and your grace, you sent your son Jesus to draw us back to yourself, that we might know you in the power of your resurrection, that we might be transformed from one degree of glory to the next, that we might, with unveiled faces, see you in your glory and goodness. So Lord, we ask that you would give us the grace to endure, the grace to persevere, The grace to know that even when our lives don't look like Christmas cards, even when we're pretending and trying to make our lives look like Christmas cards, you still love us, you still call us back to yourself, and if we look to Christ in faith, we will indeed be delivered from the darkness of our own sin and the darkness of all despair, because you are a God who delights in saving your people. You are our God who delights in keeping covenant. You are our God who is dependable and consistent And your grace is new every morning, and your mercy is without end. We love you, Jesus, when you pray this all in your holy and powerful name. Amen.